Again, we've been walking through the book of Mark. And uh, one of the pieces here that we need to go down, I skipped the portion of verses last week, and I want to come back to those. But again, I want to set the context by putting the first verse on the screen from the book of Matthew. And this is the same event. Okay, Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Now somewhere Jesus is heading home. He stops and he heals this man who was blind more than likely from birth. He was mute. He couldn't speak more than likely from birth. And he was demon-possessed. And most of the people looked at what Jesus did and they were amazed. This might be the Messiah. This is maybe it's the son of David. But there was another group there who did not respond with amazement, they responded with contempt. They were the scribes and the Pharisees that were always following him around. Look at the text for this morning. Mark chapter 3, verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of the demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man, and then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. These men had just watched a miracle. And they knew either it was from God or it was from Satan. And they were unwilling to believe that it was from God. And they concluded that Jesus was demonized. And that he healed this man by the power of Satan. Now, i, I got to say, over the years, see, there's another issue here, but over the years, there have been a number of times where people have shown up in my office with pretty some real profound anxiety. And somewhere through the course of the conversation, it comes out that they have great doubt about an issue, and the issue is this, I just did something. And did I lose my salvation, or maybe to say it different, did God turn his back on me, or could have sometimes it's been even once or twice looking at children, that they've done something? Now, the, the question, if they came and threw that at you, what would you tell them? How would you respond to that, those statements? See, understand, this text today is really a quite difficult text. Look at verse 29 again. 
But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. We, we phrase this the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the deal. Over the centuries, for, for since after Christ, there has been debate as to what this actually means. And here's how I'm going to approach it here this morning. I'm going to give you five different views of what this, what does the unpardonable, the unforgivable sin actually mean. The first one, if you're following along in the outline there in the bulletin, I said this. Some believe it's this, murder and etc. That there's certain acts that one stands condemned and therefore cannot be forgiven. It could be murder. It, it could, some would say it's homosexuality or sexual abuse toward children or adultery or some other things. They label those as an unforgivable type sin. Now, here's the challenge, even if you were to pick murder. Do you understand Paul himself would label himself as a murderer? And Moses did murder somebody. And even David both committed adultery and he was complicit in killing a man. Now, there's other acts as well people would look at. Some have said this in terms of that, etc. This is denying Christ when you're suffering. You know what? But Peter did that. Now, here's one as well. Some people say this. It's suicide. That's the unforgivable sin. But i got to point something out. There is nowhere in Scripture that points to that being the case. And my argument to you is that none of those things are the unforgivable sin as we look at it today in the text. There's a new one, though. Number two here that I just discovered this week. I didn't know this, but it's out there right now. And number two, it's attributing modern miracles to Satan. It's those that are in the signs and wonders movement where people have accused them of that some of the miracles and signs and wonders from Satan. And then they would say that is an unforgivable sin to say it's from Satan in our day and age. Now, we've got to catch this, and we'll, we'll see this later. This text is wider than just that. And I think they're wrong, actually, in this one. But this one was new for me as well. But there's a third one, and it's this, number three, the sin of unbelief. This is the most common one that's out there. And so it goes like this. If one doesn't respond to Jesus, doesn't respond to the cross, doesn't accept Christ as Savior and Lord, then when one dies, that therefore it's unforgivable. You can't change anything, and therefore that is the unforgivable sin. Um, now, most people, for myself, I'd agree with that. In, in the sense where if one comes up to that place and, and death, you enter into death, and if there's been no salvation, there is not a second chance. I, I recognize that. But I'm going to tell you today, I don't believe this is it in terms of what Jesus is telling these scribes and the Pharisees. As I look at the scripture, there are many times where people turned away from God. The rich young ruler... He was disappointed. He had to give up everything. He turns and he walks away. 
And Jesus never used that phrase in those other instances. I think of Jesus, he overlooking Jerusalem, weeping because they didn't respond to him. But he doesn't say, oh, they're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And over all the writers of all, actually, the New Testament, there's lots of examples of unbelief, but it's never referred to as this sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So I don't really believe that this is really the one either as well. This text is very specific, and and it's talking again to some individuals here. Now, understand one thing as you look at the scriptures. One of the critical pieces in interpreting scripture is always three words, context, context, and context. Okay, very important when we look and determine the meaning of what the author intended, the context is critical to determine what it really actually means. And I want to give you a number four here, which I think is plausible in that sense, but this one actually fits the context in a a more, I think, in in a greater way. The number four is this, persistent unbelief, when they have clear evidence of the truth. Now, let me explain this view in this way. Um, And again, I think this does fit the context in one sense. This phrase, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is very pointed. And remember the audience who they're talking to here is a group of people. Well, let me show you again, just kind of widen the context and go to the same incident here in Matthew chapter 12. I want to give you the context in a fuller way. Look at verse 31 and 32. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word... Look at this. Against the Son of Man, who's that? Christ. He will be forgiven. He'll be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Do you know what that implies? We can speak things against Jesus and probably the Father. And we're okay. That's what they're saying. And if you speak against the Holy Spirit... It's not okay. Now, now what's, what's going on here? Well, in this view, i, I got to remind you of something that's very important here. Again, they accused him that his power came from Satan, right? But here's what we need to remember. Christ, as he became a man, there's a nuance that I think we forget. Even as we walk through and look at what Jesus is doing. In Philippians chapter 2, the New American says this very straightforward. He emptied himself. What does that mean? He set aside his Godhead, his power, to become a real man. He emptied himself to become a man. And then the question then is this. Well, how did he get the power then to do the miracles? to heal this demon-possessed, this blind, this mute man. Well, if you watch closely over all the Gospels and, and kind of look for it, what you're going to see over and over again, well, let me, let me show you the same. Um, he, he actually tells the guys, these scribes and Pharisees, in the Matthew 12 version of this. Look how it reads. 
But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What's he saying there? I don't drive them out by myself. It is the Spirit that does gives me the power to drive out those demons and to heal those healings, which he did often. See, the power of Jesus came from the third section of the Godhood, the Holy Spirit. If you remember even Romans 8, he was raised by the Spirit. He didn't raise himself, but he set aside, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And matter of fact, we, we covered this when we first introduced the book back, back in Mark chapter 1. If you remember, John the Baptist was baptizing them. And you remember the story there that a dove ascended on him and it was the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit sent him out into the desert. You see, the Holy Spirit is an integral part of Jesus' work here on this earth. And, and by the way, just a reminder here, when God works in this world now, through healing, through something else, it is the Holy Spirit is that the one that is doing that work and giving that power and that healing in our day as well. But understand again, the setting and the context here, who's he warning? He, he grounds up these scribes and these Pharisees that are challenging him. The warning is not directed actually at the crowd when you look at that. These men had just seen though, this group had just seen a mute, a blind, and a demon-possessed man made whole. And you gotta catch this. They do not deny the healing. They know for certain that he was healed. It was undeniable evidence. Matter of fact, it, it, when you step back and you go, as they were watching him already, remember earlier, he had healed a leper. Here was a man covered with leprosy, maybe limbs that were deformed, and all of a sudden, it was this man that was healed. There was no stench anymore. They knew it. It was undeniable. The evidence of healing was profound there. They could not deny it. And what they wanted to know is, Jesus, where did you get the power? Where did you get the authority to heal? Folks, listen, they had tasted of his power. They had seen the Holy Spirit work. And beyond that, I think of as they were watching Jesus, I don't think they could refute his love for people, for the hurting I don't think they could refute his righteousness even. And yet, this group, they stubbornly, they willfully, with complete and ever-deepening disdain, they refuse to acknowledge his righteousness and the power of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Their rejection did not come from ignorance. It was a willful, and it, with intensity, they despised him. And then they had the audacity to tell him that he got his power from Satan. This wasn't some slip of the tongue thing for them. It was persistent. It was a continuous rebellion in the face of undeniable truth. So in this view, understand this. People who would advocate this view, there's a line 
where people can witness and taste of God's goodness, His righteousness. They can even recognize God's power. But what happens is their hearts, and they do it by themselves, it becomes harder and harder, and they willfully reject the work of the Holy Spirit in this world where there is clear evidence, and they know it. See, this isn't just putting Christ on the back burner and sliding away and forgetting. This line is crossed actually with passion, intensity, intentionality. See, the refusal to acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is in a world that has a mission to reveal the love of God. They're going, I'm going to choose not to accept it. I'm going to reject it. And folks, that's not simple not believing when you know it. Because of their hard hearts, they don't want Christ. They deny it. And and in this view, they believe that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's an intentional. Matter of fact, they would point back to Pharaoh as another example. Remember Pharaoh, all of the miracles demonstrated over and over and over again. And each time he chose to harden his heart one more step. And ultimately, God took care of it. See, this is an open-eyed rejection of the known truth. Now, the, the question here, what some would ask and say this, is there really scriptural evidence that an unbeliever can come to this point and, and cross the line in which forgiveness is impossible? And this view would say yes. Now, one statement that I came across in this view, they would describe it this way. You can know when people don't cross that line. And it would be like this. If there's doubt, somebody comes into your office or my office and says, you know, I'm just wondering if I've crossed the line. This view would say, you have not. The fact that there's doubt, that there's concern, would indicate there's not this hard heart that's willfully crossed that line of blaspheming the Spirit. Now, they would also say this about this view as well, that we can't know the hearts of those who have. That's reserved for God himself. And the struggle there, for some people it's this, when you come to, for example, John 3.16, whosoever believes, some would say, well, this view limits that in some form. That's the fourth position. Let me give you a fifth one. Number five, it is a unique first century sin. And I'll be honest with you, this is where I tend to come down, or at this point where I really lean. This view is that there's historical circumstances of the unpardonable sin that cannot be reproduced today. Jesus was in Israel offering the kingdom and doing the miracles to authenticate who he was. And the Pharisees saw evidence of this and they ascribed that work to Satan. And they spoke in an irreverent and a wicked way and like for it, it was very intentional. 
It was done with full knowledge of the truth. Their hearts were so hard and their passion, so they refused to acknowledge the work of the Holy Spirit when he was right before their eyes. But this view says it was that point in history. Sin, sin could not be forgiven for these. And again, this is a warning here. And at some point, they crossed that line and they were not forgiven. By the way, there were other miracles again. Later on, he ends up raising people from the dead and they refused to acknowledge that. But this view limits the unpardonable sin really to a, a, at the time when Christ was at work when he was on this earth. And for me, I, I just think this is the most consistent view in light of the context, in the light of the text itself. Now, I, I'm not going to argue with you if you got a different view than that. You know, that, that's okay. We'll give you the right to be wrong. That's all right. But, <laughs> but understand this. Now, now here's where I got to switch. Because we spend time on this unpardonable sin, but what, what happens is when we read this passage, it, it's kind of like a laser beam. We read that, un, you know, the unforgivable sin, the, the um, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and our eyes go right to that phrase. And we end up bypassing actually a verse that's far more important than even the unforgivable sin. Verse 28. Let me put that on the screen. Look in your Bibles. It says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. That's Christian, followers of Christ. That's the son of man. And whoever, whatever blasphemies they utter. Folks, this verse is really, really good news. And this verse is profoundly connected to Christmas. This is love that is realized has come down, has been realized in fullness. But you notice the two words there, all sins, that it's a compound word, it's an interesting word, and it's used in different places, but I want to put that word, two different illustrations of the word sin here, and how it's unique in this particular place. So look at 1 John 1, 8. It says this, if we say that we have sin, that word is the word used, uh, hamartia. That one, it's, it's used about 150 times in the New Testament. But that's not the word that's used here in this text in Mark 3. Jesus used this in Mark 3. The, the word there is um, hamartema, and then he adds all, which is posharmatea. See, and this one is not just individual sins. Put that next slide up there. Here, there we go. That's that second word. See, it's a little bit different there. That's not one sin at all. This is about what he's talking about here is that when one comes to know Christ, all our past sins are forgiven. The ones we're doing right now are forgiven. The ones in the future are forgiven. Now, the challenge here, the English really doesn't do justice to this, but let me try to illustrate what this means. Have you ever pondered how many times we sin a day? I, I mean, is attitude an act of selfishness? Now, now, say that we got saved at 12 years old. I want to put up a slide on the screen. 
If we average two sins a day, and, and let's give grace to zero to one, okay? When they come out of the womb, I would argue they sin immediately, okay? But one to 12, if you average two sins a day, you're going to commit 8,030 sins. And say a person lives to 80. From 12 to 80, if you average two sins a day, the total would be 57,670 sins. And do you realize that one sin condemns us to hell? Yeah. I was asking some of the, some of the guys that I know, well, you know, how many times do you sin a day? So that's Tom here, and Tom goes, oh, maybe one. <laughs> Sorry, Tom. But, but do we catch the point? Let me put on the screen the next slide. Folks, this verse says this. Past, present, future. And I don't care if it's 57,000, 157,000, or 257,000. What Jesus is saying, if you are in Christ, every one of them has been forgiven. And you go, shouldn't that blow our minds? Shouldn't we be bowing our knees before Christ and saying, thank you? And that he sent a child into this world that God sent it, the Father sent his Son, so he could, we could be forgiven? Look at Psalm 86.5. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Now, here's the challenge. We struggle at times with what forgiveness, I think, really means. See, that word forgiveness, there are a couple of issues around it that which, which cause some complication in it. The first one is this. I, I think we want always to be forgiven. When we sin, we want people to forgive us. But the challenge practically is that people want forgiveness at times without doing the work of reconciliation between people. And those, both of those issues are in the scriptures because the Bible speaks of both. So there's, understand there's consequences to sin. And at times it gets muddied whether we've forgiven or not forgiven. And actually, there's another issue surrounding forgiveness here. And I think it's like this, is that sometimes we say hard things or something that's maybe thrown at us or where somebody says something hard. And you know what? You're just like your mother. And you know what we do? Yeah, I forgive you, but I'm going to put it in the bank. And I'm going to keep it for a little while. And when I need to draw that out, I want to use that at some point down the line. We like to keep a checking account of our sins. And the challenge is, as the offended party, it's easy to forgive and still stay mad just a little bit. And that's not the forgiveness that Jesus is talking about here, folks. You know, we think we can sin and just keep the tally there. Now, there's one other issue surrounding forgiveness that I see, and at times there are certain sins that create a great deal of mistrust. And not trusting somebody and forgiving them are two different issues, and at times we want to link them together. So you've got to be careful at that. That's a whole other sermon at that point. 
But I got to come back here because this word of forgiveness, what it really implies, it means to send something away. When he looks at us, he has completely removed it from his account. There's no account anymore. Because love came down, we embrace him as Lord and Savior, and he gives us his spirit, and he fully forgives us. There's no record of it, and there's no account of it. It is gone. It's never charged against us again. See, it's more than just covering our sins and putting a blanket. It's throwing them away. And, and, and there's a, a principle, let me, I think you can now catch it already on your notes there, uh, really a profound truth because love came down. Every sin, past, present, and future is forgiven forever. We've got to remember that. Now, there's a warning here. If we want to continue, the Spirit convicts us and we want to keep on doing it, we're setting ourselves up. If we're a child of God, we're opening ourselves up for His discipline. That can be very true. But let me put Psalm 103 on the screen here. Look at this one. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. As far from the east and the west, how far is that? Has he got rid of them? Isn't that, shouldn't that draw us into worship him? Let me give you one more truth, I think, though, as a result of this, and it's connected to forgiveness. That second one there, Jesus wants us to experience. Go to that next slide there. The power to forgive. Now, let me just read you a bit of a story here. It's from the book Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. If you've ever read that book, uh, the Ten Boom family was in World War II. They used to hide the people from the Nazis, and they got caught, and the family got distributed in a number of concentration camps, and where most of the family died. But she was speaking at a church in Germany. And in, in her book, part of the story goes like this. It was a church service in Munich that I saw him. The former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was there. The room full of mocking men, heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. She had flashbacks as she looked at this man. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. To think as you say, he has washed my sins away. And his hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I who had preached so often to people in Blumendahl the need to forgive, I kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing. Not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathe a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. 
And the story goes on, and he, it says that she took his hand, and then something incredible happened at this point. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while in my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not our forgiveness any more than our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on this. When he, God, tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command the love itself. The love itself. The power to love. Jesus wants us to experience the power to forgive other people. I'm going to ask the elders to come on up. Do you realize that this table represents forgiveness, total forgiveness, one of the hundreds of thousands of sins that we might commit. But I want to put one more verse on the screen that just kind of nails it for us. Look at what it reads, Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And you have to just go, amen. God wants us to forgive, to experience his forgiveness, and for us to have the power to turn around and forgive. I'm going to ask the elders to hand out the bread I just remind you, we practice open communion here. It means that if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've been forgiven, and I want you to just pause and give God thanks for this body that was broken on your behalf. So let's celebrate and let's remember the great forgiveness that he's given to us.